Good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. So, um, uh oh, I didn't mean to do that. How many of you have access to Netflix? Okay, so here's an assignment. And for those of you who are watching, if you have Netflix, there is a movie just released on Netflix called Mission Colon Joy on Netflix. It is the movie version of the book, uh, The Book of Joy, which is a series of interviews between the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. It is wonderful. The, the name of the movie is Mission, colon, Joy. It's on Netflix. It is the movie version of the interviews between the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. The Book of Joy, I've mentioned a bunch of times in here, is the only book I think I can remember ever reading in one sitting. I read it on the plane back from Rome. Um, and it's, you know, Desmond Tutu died last year. But the Dalai Lama is still alive. And, and, and it's just, it, seeing these two guys interact is just, Incredible. So that's what I wanted to begin with today. Okay. We don't have any slides, but we're coming. Uh, so make sure your, your cell phone is off. And um, again, thank you to Lauren. Josh is not here today. I don't see Lauren. You're running the show by yourself. So uh, if it's no good, it'd be Lauren's fault. No. Thank you. I thank both of them for the time that they put in last weekend for here. So um, do whatever it takes for you to be here, and let's begin in silence. And hopefully we'll have some slides up before long. I don't know what the problem is. Just do what's required to get your body and your mind here, get grounded. If it helps to close your eyes, you can do that. And um, our goal here is just to be present and to be open and to be awake at this time. And uh, the grace prayer that we have been using is grace be in our heads and in our thinking, grace be in our eyes and in our seeing, grace be in our ears and in our hearing, Grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. Grace be in our hearts and in our understanding. Grace be in our ends and at our departing. Okay. You came here today hoping for something. Otherwise you wouldn't be here. I came here today, among other things, to tell you how much I love you and how grateful I am for being able to do this. Um, I'm grateful for this gathering, and um, 
I don't know why you're here. I'm here because I get this privilege, which I'm going to talk about later today, of getting to work on what I offer here during the week, which benefits me. I'm glad that it benefits some of you. I hope it benefits all of you, but I'm the real beneficiary of what's coming here. I hope to offer you useful uh, information, and uh, I hope you leave here today having found whatever it is that you're looking for, but certainly more hopeful and joyful and peaceful than you did when you walked in. And so remember the trinity of love, truth, freedom, and... Um, Love honesty and freedom if you prefer honesty to truth. And our belief is that what we do here benefits all people everywhere. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Okay, so some years ago, a good friend of ours had graduated from law school and she had passed the bar and she'd been invited to join a firm here in Houston, and they were having a fancy sit-down dinner to welcome her on board, and she was expected to give a brief acceptance speech. And she came to me and asked me if I would teach her a joke that she might be able to tell at this event. Now, why me for that task? I don't know. It was an honor. It was also a challenge because she had already developed a reputation for being probably the worst joke teller I have ever encountered in my life. I remember one time uh, she was part of a couple that were our best couple friends when they lived here in Houston. And I remember one time we got together going out to dinner and she said, oh, Bill, I heard a new joke that you were going to really like. And I said, great, let me lay it on me. What is it? And she said, well, after the patient told the doctor her, her symptoms, he removed his mask. Yeah, well, that's it. What do you mean that's it? Well, that's the part everybody laughed at. She just couldn't, she couldn't tell a joke. So um, at any rate, fools rush in where angels fear to tread, so I taught her a joke that I thought would be appropriate to the occasion. And here's the joke. Do you know what the Buddhist monk said to the hot dog vendor? Make me one with everything. It's an old joke. Actually, it's a longer, uh, there's a longer, better version of this joke, which I think is funnier. Uh, and the longer version is that the Buddhist monk goes up to the hot dog vendor, gives him a $20 bill, and says, make me one of everything. And the hot dog vendor gives him a hot dog with everything on it. And uh, the Buddhist monk just stands there for a while and says, well, where's my change? And the hot dog vendor says, change comes from within. So we rehearsed it several times. Make me one with everything. Make me one with everything. All right. So she was going to open with this joke and then say, I'm glad that you have made me one with this group. And I'm going to, I'm blah, blah, blah. It was a great joke for opening. You can use it. You don't even have to give me credit. It's an old joke. Right. So she gets up on the night of the event and she says, what did the Buddhist monk say to the hot dog vendor? 
Give me one with everything on it. <laughs> Fortunately, she is a better lawyer than she is a joke teller. The joke is fictitious, of course. The Buddhist monk in it, however, makes a mistaken assumption. And it is one that we all make. He was asking for something he already had. We are already one with everything. Especially that great mystery we mean when we use the word God. What we don't have is an awareness of this. Awareness and awareness as a path of transformation is what is going to be the focus of my talks for the next, as far as I see right now, two months. I've got the next six weeks pretty well planned, but for the next two months for sure, uh, next six weeks for sure. And today we're going to take the first step in that journey, and then the next week come back to talk about six aspects of this path of transformation for awareness and today I'm going to give you kind of an overview and what some of the methodology is and and that sort of thing. Um, the title I've given for the time today is Full Catastrophe Living and uh, I'll explain why that title and where it came from in, in a few minutes. So the last time we were together, which is about a month ago, December the 18th to be precise, I introduced to you a concept known as integral theory. Now, you do not need to know integral theory, but I do think it is helpful for you to know about integral theory. Integral theory, at least in the arena of spirituality, psychology, and religion, this is apart from Einstein's work in the field of science. It is apart from the uh, theory of everything uh, uh, theory. Uh, but this, this is the result of a, the work of a man named Ken Wilber. And it is an attempt to understand how humans behave and what we believe and to take into consideration all that might be known, be able to be known about us at the present time. And it tries to take into consideration what's true about us as individuals, What's true about us as groups and the larger groups that we are a part of, a, are a part of, and it seeks also to take into consideration our interior lives, what influences have been, um, as well as the exterior realities of our lives and our histories. And I know it's a lot, and I know it can seem overwhelming. This is the simplest diagram of integral theory that I have found. The others are just really overwhelming. But I want you to know that this exists, that this is not uh, something that, that you make up. Con consider this like the operating theory of your iPhone. You would not use the same operating theory for an iPhone 14 as you would for the iPhone when it first came out. It's a new operating theory because as technology increases and as our knowledge increases, as our capacities increase, as our needs increase, then these new things come online. Does that make sense? We learn more and more all the time. So um, interval theory is similar in a way to what has happened with evolutionary cosmology. 
we know so much more about the cosmos than our ancestors did. The discoveries of the cosmologists, the scientists, the mathematicians, the physicists, those things did not create anything new. It just seems new to us when we first learn it. Germs have always carried the potential for causing infection and death. But people like Joseph Lister simply found a way to apply germ theory to surgery, and that caused people not to die when they had surgical operations. So similar discoveries have been made in the areas of psychology and religion, and we're going to be taking advantage of those as we go forward. Now, I'm going to be using the teachings of Jesus as a light for us to use as we travel the way. When I was 14 or so, I was sure that Jesus and his teachings were the only and the correct perspective for a religious path. I believe that because that's what I had been taught. Um, I believed that God had waited until there were Baptists in Tennessee to tell the truth about what was going on. And that the only place to find this information was in the Bible and more particularly in the Baptist church. And of course, now I have a much different operating system. Integral theory, I think, can be used in at least two primary ways. The first is to help us understand what's happening to us, both individually and collectively, for example, I am no longer an adolescent, pre-young adult living in Tennessee, but I also have the awareness that had I been born into another time, another country, I would have inherited a different set of beliefs, and they would have been, to me, as valid as the ones that I inherited, which relevantizes what I was given as the truth. Follow what I'm saying? And further, I would have held that those truths would, would have been just as real. So integral theory can help us that. And second, integral theory can also be used as a tool or a map to help us navigate the next level of discovery. There are different growth levels in all areas, which is what integral theory is trying to teach us. And integral theory says, okay, here's some possibilities for what's next. And that's very exciting, and that's very hopeful, and that's very terrifying all at the same time. Because it's exciting and hopeful that there's more to come. It turns me on at my age to know, wow, there's still all this other material to learn that I didn't know. That's really exciting to know. And, and also, oh my God, if I move to this next level, it means I'm going to have to leave behind some of the things right now that are comfortable and comforting to me. Right? Both of those. We don't know what's next. And I just want to tell you, if my life and experience are any indication, there is more in store for you if you're open to it than you are aware of. Okay. Now, here's the question. Do we choose a path to walk, or are we given a path? And regardless of how you answer that question, um, 
how free are we to either radically change or modify the path we're on? Really, how free internally are we? And this raises the whole question of fate and destiny. Now, my fate involves the fact that I was born a white male in the southern part of the country that has as some of its founding principles taught both consciously and not white supremacy. I was not born a female in the Middle East. <clears throat> I was born in a particular class that it ha had its own uh, values regarding economics and education. These are things over which I had no control. Had I been born to parents who were devout Roman Catholics or Jews, my life would have been shaped in radically different ways. Now, what I've done or not done with these facts of my fate have been my destiny. Now, I, I consider myself one of the most fortunate people on the planet. Um, I have lived and I am living a deeply graced life. I get to do things that bring me a great deal of pleasure. I get to work every day on stuff that stimulates me and causes me to grow. I get to speak to you every week, which is really a great spiritual practice. And if you want to be open to it, see me after class. And we'll talk about the possibility of you just think about, okay, next week you've got to come up here and teach a class based on your experience of the previous seven days. It would change how you live those seven days, right? Or you'd stand up here and lie a lot. <laughs> but you, you have no idea. I think about this. I think about you. All the time, every day, think about how I can say this, phrase this, what will interest you after all these many years, get your attention, all that. And also, a couple of days a week, I get the privilege to sit with people as they are trying to sort out some of the most difficult passages in their life. Now, I've got permission to share this story. I'm going to tell you. It happened many years ago. A man came to see me with a request that I sit with him while he sorted out a major decision he was making. And <clears throat> my opening question of almost every counseling session I do is some version of, if our time goes well together today for you, what will you get out of this session? And I'm asking that question of you right now. If this, all this goes well for you today, what will you walk out of here with? Food for thought. What? Food for thought. Food for thought or a sacred cookie. <laughs> you can get that. So I asked this guy this question, and he said, well, I'm thinking about changing jobs. And I'm stuck trying to decide if it's the right thing to do. And I just thought I would talk it over with you and see. And I said, well, tell me more. And he said, well, I have a good job. I, I studied long and hard for it. It's financially rewarding. I'm good at what I do. But I go through my job performance on automatic pilot. He said, you know how you can get in your car and drive from one side of town to the other 
and you get there safely, you don't have any wrecks, you don't kill anybody, but if the end of the drive somebody were to ask you to tell you about the drive that you just made, you couldn't do it. Because you're like in this hypnotic trance. And I said, I know exactly what that's like. I do a lot of life that way. Tell me, what do you do for a living? And he said, I'm a surgeon. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you need to change jobs. I don't want you operating on me like that. There's a line in one of David White's poems, a woman says, uh, 10 years ago I glanced aside for a moment and it became my life. And we can get distracted like that and go through life in that kind of thing. So if we are serious about undertaking the journey of making sacred the already sacred journey, of being involved in the process of becoming centers of freedom and love, the very first prerequisite is that of paying attention, of being awake, being aware. This is not new to you. You've heard it for years. Buddha said it, Jesus said it, all the great spiritual teachers say it. But if our lives have become cloudy, or our world, we need some light to navigate by, and the light I'm going to be using is the light of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus as we know them. And um, before moving on in that, I want to say, I want to say something about uh, about Jesus and using his teachings. And I get at it this way: you know, professional football has been in the headlines recently. I think there are two games on today, two games on tomorrow. Is that right? Three today, three big, three big games. And and one of the reasons that football has been in the headlights is because of what happened to Demar Hamlin with um, um, Buffalo Bills, right? He had a cardiac arrest on the game, and for the first time in my memory, they quit the game right there, and everybody went home. Um, now, professional football is going to continue, but in the aftermath of that incident, Neil Greenberg, who is a sports writer for the Washington Post, said something that I thought, was so accurate and spot on, it had never occurred to me before. He said, you know, in America, baseball is a pastime. Football is an addiction. And I went, whoa, that seems to be true. It's true in my experience. I mean, I confess. Um, the TV is on, and if the game is close, I'm captured. You know, to see how it goes. I'm always for the underdog, by the way. It doesn't matter to me who, who wins. I'm just for the team that's on the bottom. If it's a big, lopping score, I go on and watch PBS. So, anyway. People in, 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 um, in, in, in football can um, get really excited about stuff. So, if we're, get, we're serious about this. I didn't notice some football fans. How they dress. Nobody dresses that way to come to class. People are really caught up in this. So I guess there are football fans here. So I want to ask you, is anybody here tell me who won the Super Bowl five years ago? Oh, okay. All right, who were the last three Heisman Trophy winners? Okay. 
Okay, maybe football is not your thing. Who were the last five recipients of the Nobel Peace Prize? Okay. What movie won the Academy Award five years ago? Now, folks, none of these are small accomplishments. These are big deals. These are major deals. Who was your first grade teacher? You know. Because that person opened doors of perception for you. That's my relationship to Jesus. And hope it will be yours too. As a teacher in a tradition that I read just this morning, started rereading a book I'll be referring to. I'm not going to recommend books anymore, Calista. I, I'm just, I'm, I know, I've got this reputation. You say I do it all the time, but I'm going to, I'm just going to say I read a book. I started rereading The Kingdom Within. And the teachings of Jesus are new every time I open a book to read. This is what Jesus did for those who were his first hearers. He was like their first grade teacher, just pow, opening things up for them. And I hope it's what we can do for us. I'm going to use the teachings of Jesus for a number of reasons. I'm going to give them to you a few, not in order of any importance. I think there is an ongoing need, especially in organized religion, or among those who consider themselves Christians or people who are followers of Jesus, to have up-to-date knowledge and information about religious literacy when it comes to Jesus. And we live in a time and place where instead of growth in religious literacy, there's been a regression. And I do not know how to say this in any other way that doesn't sound like a judgment. But people at early stages of development, whether with regards to their ego states or to their levels of consciousness or to their levels of awareness, another way integral theory comes into being helped, have a tendency to be very anxious. And they have what I call a fragile grasp on the truth. And... Being insecure in that fragility, they make claims about some external authority, be it religious or political, that from a higher level of development looks like some sort of hysteria. And it's that why some of us, and I don't mean this judgmentally, can look at people at earlier levels of development and say, how in the world can you possibly believe that? Now, I'm going to give you a few facts. We have nothing in writing from the time of Jesus. Nada. Zilp. The earliest writings we have about Jesus come from the Jesus movement about 25 years after Jesus was executed. And those writings come from someone who never met Jesus. That person is Paul, who had more to do to shape the Christian movement early on than any of the gospel writers. 
The Gospels we have in the Christian Testament were written anywhere from 40 to 70 years after the death of Jesus. You now think about how clearly you can recall something 40 years ago or 70 years ago. I've always been concerned about and interested in conveying the most up-to-date information about religious matters, and that need is growing in our time, not diminishing. It seems that worldwide, more and more people have bought into or embracing doctrines and beliefs of their religion in unquestioning ways, and that this ignorance is leading to mayhem in all the world's major religions, all of them. Uh, in Israel today, the government is going through far right, hard as it can be, as fast as it can go. Now, if you were to walk up to the average person on the street and say, did you know that if you rub blueberry yogurt on yourself at 3 o'clock in the morning under a full moon, you will become invisible? People will look at you like you're crazy. But if you walk up to many people, be they Muslim, Jewish, or Christian, and say, did you know that your holy book was humanly constructed and is full of errors, omissions, and contradictions? Some of them would literally kill you or utterly dismiss you out of hand as being crazy. The fact is that the transmission of sacred scripture, whether it's in the Buddhist tradition, the Islamic tradition, the Sufi tradition, uh, the Hindu tradition, the Jewish tradition, the Christian tradition, any of the major traditions, is, is, is a lot messier, and it's a lot more... Um, politically motivated than most people are aware of or can imagine. Now, everything I just said to you, I can back up with facts and documents, and if you want to know where they are, see me, and I will recommend a book. I wish you all would start a writing campaign and get the Houston Chronicle to start printing jokes again. So they used to print my jokes. And uh, one of the jokes that they printed of mine in the Houston Chronicle was, my next door neighbor said that they were sending their son off to Bible college after he graduated from high school. And I said, why? And they said, one book, four years, how hard could it be? <laughs> Well, reading, interpreting, and understanding the writings that make up any sacred text is a lifelong, hard undertaking to do. And we rely on the works of people like Marcus Borg, now deceased, John Dominic Crossan, all the, in the Jewish tradition. There are big books, uh, journals that come out every quarter, the Journal of Biblical Literature, the Journal of Biblical Archaeology that nobody in here ever sees or reads. But we have scholars out there who are doing work in these fields that are just as academically important as work that's being done in math, physics, cosmology, science, medicine, and so forth. All right? That's, what, that's my point that I'm, I'm trying to say. And, and a lot of this stuff is available in non-academic jargon that you can actually
access. So go read some of Bart Ehrman's works or Marcus Borg if you haven't read him. And it's accessible, it's readable, it's understandable, and it will blow your mind about what some of the stuff that we're reading. So, for example, scholars now think that there's not a single word in the Gospel of John that can be attributed to Jesus. A lot of people hear that and they go, oh my God, that's my favorite verse, John 3.16. He didn't say that. No, <laughs> likely not. But his followers created that in response to their experience with him. I got this in a Baptist seminary, folks. I mean, it, 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 at the time when it was really a good seminary. The professor got us, two of us up in class and had us read the third uh, chapter of the Gospel of John by parts. Now, if you read the Gospel of John, the third chapter of John, Nicodemus comes to John and spends the entire evening with Jesus. Nobody else is there. So how do we know <laughs> what goes on? And then later you have this transcription, and if you read it, that whole night can be said between two people in less than two minutes. And that's where John 3.16 is found. I think it can be demonstrated that all the, the, the four Gospels, uh, the writers, and there were more than one, knew that they were not writing history. They were not writing biography. They were interpreting Jesus in the context of their relationship to him and his story in the context of their time. So think of it this way. The gospel writings are painted portraits of Jesus. They are not photographs. They are not digital recordings. They are parables. Now, I do believe, having said that, what we have available to us gives us life-giving, life-transforming insights that can open doors into the mystery of grace. That's why I treasure these teachings. That's why I base my teachings on these teachings. Now, what I want to say now is a bit of a digression, but you ought to know this, and that's why I think I want to teach you. You know about the Jefferson Bible? Um, I got this out of line. Forgive me. Give you a chance to practice forgiveness. Okay. Here we go. This is the Jefferson Bible. You know about the Jefferson Bible? Um, you can, oh, it went away. You, you can go on Amazon and, um, or Wikipedia and you can read about the Jefferson Bible. You can actually buy a copy of the Jefferson Bible. Now, in my awareness, there have been four efforts across history to produce new Gospels. Tolstoy did one that doesn't get a lot of press, but it's okay. Um, Jefferson did one. Our president, former president, did one. Stephen Mitchell, who is an outstanding linguistic scholar, a Middle Eastern scholar, he did one called The Gospel of Jesus. And Robert Funk did one. I had taught all through Robert Funk's Gospel for a long time in here. Those are the only four that I personally know about and know about this one. Thomas Jefferson, did. he thought Jesus was a great moral teacher and a great person. 
but he didn't believe that he was divine or did miraculous things. So he took a pair of scissors and cut that stuff out of the New Testament. Cut the miracles out, cut any reference to transcendence and the miraculous out, cut the virgin birth out, cut the resurrection out. It used to be that every member of Congress was given a copy of the Jefferson Bible. They don't do that anymore. And there was no hubbub when this came out. You go back and look at the, you can go back and search about it in the article. Eh, Jefferson did this, no big deal. Can you imagine if Joe Biden <laughs> took a pair of scissors to the New Testament and it made the Fox News or NBC? Can you imagine what that would be? Or can you imagine what it would have been like if Barack Obama had done that? Heavenly days. We need up-to-date information about what's out there. That's all I'm saying. I grew up being exposed, as many of you did, to this painting of Jesus. This is probably the best-known painting in the Western world of the face of Jesus. Um, it was done by Warner Salmon in 1940. I would imagine if you walk across into the cathedral building over there and go from room to room, you'll find this painting several times. I know that before the big renovation, it was in a lot of rooms, whether it's still there or not. I don't know. You could go and check. I grew up seeing this all the time. It's on cards. It was on Bibles. It's on tracts. It's on everything. This is really... So people get exposed to this in the Western world. They begin to think, this is what Jesus looked like. He was a white Anglo male, blonde hair, Hmm? Looks like quarterback last night. Quarterback. So what we didn't have in 1940 was forensic medicine. We didn't have forensic anthropology. We didn't have forensic archaeology. So that, that has allowed this forensic archaeology stuff for archaeologists to go back and exhume bones from the area and the time when a male at Jesus' time lived. And they use that to reconstruct what a male likely looked at, looked like in the time of Jesus. Now, this is not what Jesus looked like. We don't know what Jesus looked like any more than we know what Jesus said. But this is a better picture based on the new evidence that we have than what, what we have known. So make me one with everything. We are already one of the great mystery. We just frequently aren't aware of this or we're not aware at the depth at which we could be or with the consciousness or awareness. And further, the context in which we can grow our awareness is right here, right now. That raises the question of where are you? How are you doing? How's your daily spiritual practice going? I mean, you look to be okay, but I know better. My friend Carlisle Marty said, you know, people don't go to church to be who they are. 
They go to church to be who they look like they hope they are. And we're all looking pretty good. But there's not a one of us here who isn't dealing with some anxiety, some grief, some heartbreak, some burden, something that causes us to lose our sleep, to do what Anne Lamott calls that first prayer of help. Please. <clears throat> About 60 years ago, there was a film that came out, and I liked it so much, I went to see it three times. Most of you were babies or not even here then. And there was no VCR, so I couldn't play it over and over. I had to go back to the movie to see it. And I meant to before today to check to see about its availability and kind of hesitate to watch it again because it may not live up to my memory's expectation. But the movie was a, 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 a movie called um, Zorba the Greek. I don't know if you remember that movie or not. I love that film. Anthony Quinn, Alan Bates were in that film. I just that film won three Academy Awards. Have you seen it? Anybody seen the film? Oh, it's a great movie. It's just a great movie. It's based on the novel by Nikos uh, Kazantakis, or however you say his name. And there's a scene in the movie that isn't in the book. At least the language is not in the movie. You might remember that. Um, Zorba, the Greek, who is played by Anthony Quinn, befriends Basil, who is played by Alan Bates, on a ferry boat that's going uh, from the mainland in Greece to Crete because Basil has inherited a mine on the Isle of Crete, and Zorba is going to help him run it. They remember the dance scene on the beach? So it's just, just such zest for life. It's just wonderful. So on the way, on the ferry boat, Basil asked Zorba, are you married? And Zorba says, am I not a man and is not a man stupid? I'm a man, so I'm married. Wife, children, house, everything, the full catastrophe. Now, I'm not saying that having or being a spouse, having children or owning a house is a catastrophe. <laughs> it is, but uh, <laughs> what I'm saying is that being a human, living on this planet, means a life of inevitable difficulty. Yeah, it's full of joy, and that joy is unspeakable at times, unspeakable love and beauty, but each one of us is aware and me, more so now every day, being 85, that I am of the nature to grow, get sick, and die. Every one of us is of the nature to change, and so are the people that we love. The pets that we cherish, I lost my dog in October, huge thing. Everything we hold dear is just going. Because we are human, we are the recipients of the full catastrophe. And what I want for you and for my teaching 
is that what happens in here speak realistically, wisely, and usefully to this condition. I had a teacher who used to say over and over, the fact of death is certain. The time of death is uncertain. Given that, how shall we live? And my answer to that is awareness. We're living in and going to have to deal with making our way in a world in which rationality, science, evidence, logical arguments, civil debate, they've lost the way in many sectors of this world. I had this terrifying thought the other night while I was going to bed after watching some of the news. Our House of Representatives really does represent us. It's reflective of us, our country. Now, we may wish it to be otherwise, but I think George Santos may be the poster child for what our culture's got going on. I mean, we started years ago setting a trend for don't tell the truth. It's happening in the church. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. It's happening in the church in a way that affects you and me. What I'm talking about right now is I'm some combination of appalled, angry, and grief-stricken about the split that's occurring in the United Methodist Church. And, and, and one of the things that is appalling to me is the out-and-out -out lies that have been told by people who are on the part of the ones who want to disaffiliate about their need to move away from the United Methodist Church. I personally, this week, and last week too, I'm not making this up, have had people call me or send me emails saying, is it true that the United Methodists are taking the Our Father out of the Lord's Prayer? Is it true that if we don't disaffiliate, we will be forced to take a gay pastor? No. The threat is if you don't disaffiliate, that means you're not a good, and then you can put ever what code word in there you want to to make you a good Christian or a good person or a believer or right or safe or whatever. I'm not a Methodist. I mean, what I mean by that is that I did not grow up in the Methodist church. I didn't come up in the Methodist system, so that's not in my DNA as it is in part of a, a lot of people. So I think I have a more dispassionate, objective way to look at what's going on about this debacle. And in my opinion, it's about one simple, complicated thing. And that is whether the church will follow the, whether the church will repent and follow the teachings of Jesus on allowing all people to sit at an inclusive table or not. So it's about. Or as our senior pastor Jeff McDonald says, it's about who people love. And it looks to me as if those who are wanting to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church are saying that Jesus was more concerned about who Jesus went to bed, or who people went to bed with, 
than whether they had a bed to sleep in. I hope you know Jesus well enough to know the answer to that. And what's worse, if you don't choose that side, you're the enemy. And what these people do with the teaching of love your enemy, I'm not, I'm not sure. So I want to make you a promise that if we do the work to move into and have it and enlighten the true self that is already within us, we already are one with what is, we will more and more live lives of peace, hope, love, joy, in spite of the fact that we are also living the full catastrophe. Now, I want to say one other sentence or two, and then I have to go work in the other building. Um, I hope you come back next week so we can begin to really sort this out and go deeper. But I just want to, I want to be clear that um, I said this on the 18th of December, but I want to say it again and kind of amplify on it. These teachings are not about walking a spiritual path. They are not about walking a religious path. They are about spiritual and religious ways of walking the human path. That's different. Now, I got this idea a number of years ago from a book by Sarah Grant called Alternative Theology, which is recommended to me by Christian Wyman, who wrote My Bright Abyss. As a matter of fact, Christian Wyman sent me a copy of this now out-of-date book, out-of-print book which he said was the best book on non-dual theology ever written. And if, you're, if you want it, I, you send me an email and I'll send you a copy of it. It's not easy to read. Sarah Grant was a Roman Catholic nun who lived in Scotland. And she, for some reason, wanted to get a better understanding of her faith, so she moved to India and she became a Hindu and use that lens to understand the teachings of Jesus. And in her book, she wrote a sentence that said, it isn't the way because Jesus walked it. Jesus walked it because it's the way. What is that way? And how can we walk it? And that is what I want these teachings to be about. There's some lines I sometimes use from, the, the, from Isaiah. I got them from Isaiah. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know. Be still. Be. That's it. So in order to be and be here and not elsewhere, we got to let some other things go. And if there's any aspect of religion or spirituality that keeps us from that, then it's not useful. Again, look at the struggle in the Methodist Church or anything that organized religion puts out there as a test of faith. Because the object of the struggle is not union with God or the sacred. It's about beliefs. It's about doctrines. It's about behaviors. It's not about union with mystery. It's not about compassion. It's not about vulnerability. It's about being right and powerful. The, the two most respected spiritual people in my life at the present time 
they're both smart and solid as they can be, have said to me just in this past week, the church or organized religion as we know it is on the way out. Now, the, the reasons for that are many and complex, and you may or may not agree with it. But they all begin with the fact that being a good Christian, believing the right things, getting the right behaviors, thing, are not the same as being on the transformational journey. And even more, all those things don't make you a good person. You're already a good person. You may not let that out. But like my former doctor friend, it's tragic to go through life mindlessly. We so often to experience, fail to experience the radical amazement that is just here. So... <clears throat> If um, my boss hears it, I'll probably hears this. I'll probably have to reinterpret it. But healthy spirituality has nothing to do with believing in God. It has nothing to do with attending church. What our souls hunger for is enfleshed spirituality. Right? What is it we call the Jesus event? Incarnation. It's incarnational spirituality. And we can look at Jesus to see, oh, that's what that looks like. The picture of vulnerability and compassion, not power and winning. Now, though it is true that we are not capable of being anything other than human, it's appallingly obvious that we are capable of being dramatically less. A spirituality that equips us to live in the midst of full catastrophe includes, but is probably not limited to, the awareness, uh, the areas of awareness and wonder, honoring others, embracing reality, living with presence in the moment, and choosing surrender. And I'm going to be devoting a talk to each one of these things as we go forward in the, the weeks ahead. Make me one with everything. You already are. And you probably got some of everything on you too. That's the full catastrophe. And we live knowing that going forward, walking away, that will lead us into deeper, fuller, more compassionate, humane humanity. Not about being religious. Not about being spiritual. Not about being Christian. It's about being who you already are. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I hope to see you here next week. Thank you. <clears throat>